we're in a series, and the series that we're in, in case you've lost track, is following Jesus. It's about discipleship, it's about how we are to be disciples uh, in this world. And uh, today, we're looking at the question, who is this God we follow? Who is this God we follow? Looking at a very short passage in Genesis. You see, at the heart of the Christian faith lies a mystery, a deep mystery. Right at the centre of everything we believe is something we find really hard to explain. It's called the Trinity. God as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit. Something that uh, is not easy to, to get your head around. Three persons, equally divine, somehow independent and yet together. It's a central but a confusing part of the Christian faith for many people. We don't often talk about the Trinity. We don't often talk about God's triune personality. Maybe because it's just hard, you know, and sometimes it's just easier not to talk about the stuff that we can't understand well. But we will this week. And actually, I looked in the, um, the church calendar, the Anglican church calendar, and in two weeks' time, it's Trinity Sunday. So it's a timely uh, discussion as well to have this month. But what I want you to keep, um, keep in mind as we go through this is that ultimately, God is, God is unfathomable, right? Ultimately, God may be hard to understand, but he is easy to know. God is hard to understand, but he makes it easy for us to know him. In fact, he says, you must come as a child with empty hands and open heart to know me. So we'll come back to that towards the end as well. So this uh, Latin word, threeness, the Trinity, all Christian churches refer to the Trinity. It's uh, that statement of faith we just read out was produced in the 4th century, maybe 5th, can't remember, but it was, it's shared between the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church. And it refers to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all evident in that. But how can God be three people and yet one person all at the same time? It is a problem. It is difficult to understand. And in fact, Many Muslims will say, well, Christians worship three gods. Allah is one God, but you guys, you have God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit. That's what they would say. And in fact, that's a discussion topic in the house groups this week. There's a question and a discussion on that. So I hope you get into that. And also, technicalities around the Trinity have caused division through the centuries. So, uh, in the 11th century, the church was still one. Uh, but there was a, a discussion on the technicality of, of the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, it was the last straw. And what happened then was, the church in the West, which became our church, which was centred in Rome, separated from the church in the East, which was based in Constantinople, now Istanbul. And the Eastern Orthodox Church was left in a very weak state, because all the leading luminaries, all the resources, all the thing, most of the thinkers... And a lot of the people were in the Western Church, and the Western Church withdrew from the East. And many historians will say that opened the way then for the spread of Islam throughout North Africa and the Middle East, which were Christian countries. So the way was opened for the spread of Islam. And I think I've said before here that the seven cities of Revelation today are all Islamic cities. So these doctrines are important. It's important as well, even at, at every level, to maintain church unity. And that's why it's, I think it's great to have a statement like that creed that talks about our unity. But it is, it has caused division. And also, I found it difficult to write this sermon. Probably one of the hardest sermons I've, I've written. Um, 
when we were back in January, John, Jonathan said, oh, he'll talk about following Jesus, and I can say, who, who is this God that we follow? And I said, well, what does that mean? He said, oh, talk about the Trinity. I said, oh, right then. <laughs> it was January, and for May was months away, you know. And I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. Talk about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in like half an hour or 26 minutes. That's not easy, right? But we'll give it a go. We'll give it a go and see where we get to. Can we find a comparison? There are lots of comparisons of the Trinity. Some of these you will have come across. Let's have a look at these. Lots of people have had a go at this. So, some time ago, one uh, fellow said, well, the Trinity is like an egg. It's one, and yet there's three parts, a white, a yolk, and a shell, which you can, as you can see, separate off there. What's the problem with that analogy of God? It's separable, isn't it? You separate, so the egg, white can be over there, the yolk can be over there, so it falls down. Here's another one, which actually I thought Jonathan was going to use last week, uh, and, and I thought of using it this week, but we talked again, God was, Jesus, uh, Jonathan was talking about transformation last week, but he used this idea of ice and water and steam, but that has also been used as an analogy, a comparison of the Trinity, that H2O is in three states, Water, ice, and steam, like God is three. What's the problem with that analogy? Anybody likes to have a guess? Well, separate parts aren't in relationship with each other. Yeah, that's true. They're separate, and they're not in relationship to each other. And so, steam cannot be ice at the same time. It's not possible. Ice cannot be steam at the same time. So that analogy breaks down. Here's another one that people have used, which is an interesting one. Relationships. A man can be a father, a son, and a husband all at the same time. So I could be a son to my parents, I can be a father to my daughters, and I can be a husband to my wife all at the same time. Is this an idea of the Trinity? What's wrong with that one? Relationships are different. Yeah, it's all about relationships, and at the end of the day, I am still just one person. I'm still one person, whereas God is actually three people. So it's just, I may have a different relationship, with wife, husband, sorry, with wife, uh, kids. <laughs> Not going there. That would be different. <laughs> I may have three different relationships with my wife, with my children, with my parents, were they still alive. But I'm, I'm just one person, same person. But God is actually, is really three people. And then some other folks said, well, maybe it's to do with timing. That when we look at the Old Testament, that well, that's God the Father active and at work there. When we look at the New Testament, well, it's Jesus, isn't it? The New Testament is all about Jesus. And then after Pentecost, isn't it all about the Holy Spirit? But again, that divides God and says, well, so what you're saying then, in the Old Testament, there's no Holy Spirit, and now there's no God the Father, that breaks down as well, because it separates God in a time sense. And then Augustine came up with this one. said, maybe the Trinity is like the mind, which can have memory, understanding, and will. I tried to think about that, it's too hard. <laughs> so that broke down for me. It's just quite, it's quite difficult, right? You can work it out at home what he was, what he was trying to get to. So some of, all of these may be helpful, but they, are, they all break down. Uh, in fact, nobody has come up with a real analogy for the Trinity, for the triune God. God, three persons and yet one. It simply hasn't been done. These can be helpful, but they all break down. A lot of Christians uh, think of it like this, and in fact, this is a very simplistic understanding of the Trinity, but I have used this when trying to explain it, and it's okay. God, Father, God the Father in the heavenly realms, ordering the universe, 
is an idea we can have. Jesus as God who came to become one of us, something we can understand, and the Holy Spirit as God who can live within each of us is an idea we can understand. And that may be helpful to you. It's not really accurate because, again, we're trying to divide God, but it can be helpful. And this is an ancient Christian symbol called the triquetra uh, that was often used to um, represent the Trinity. It's one line, one continuous line, and yet three parts. Or you can think of it as three semicircles that come together to form a, a single unity. Okay, so we've, we've um, talked around this topic a little bit and jumped around and thought about analogies. Let's double-click and go into the Bible and say, well, what? let's actually lift the lid on this, of this idea of the Trinity. And there are passages of the Bible that talk about the Trinity. What do you think they are? For us. Would you like to remind us, John 10.30? Okay, yep, yep. There's a triune statement, statement there. Any other passages of where God, Father, and Holy Spirit are all present? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all present. Creation. And what's the other one? We had it last week. Was it last week? About Jesus' baptism. Um, God the Father speaks. God the Son is baptized. And God the Holy Spirit descends on him. Yeah. So we could talk about that as well. But we'll talk about uh, the, the very beginning of Genesis, the very first two or three verses in the beginning. Let's try starting at the start. So this is what Genesis 1, 1 to 3 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And I'll read the message translation as well. First this, God created the heavens and the earth, all you see, all you don't see. Earth was a, was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded, brooded like a bird over the watery abyss. Remember that line, we'll come back to it. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke, light, and light appeared. Right at the start of that, sorry, right at the start of that, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So this isn't something that comes into the Bible at some later point. It's right there, right at the start of creation, uh, right at the start of time. And of course, time is also something that God invented as well, that God made. So right from the beginning, we see God the Father as the central character in Genesis 1. He is the one who orders the universe, who calls the universe into being. And we see God the Holy Spirit as hovering over the face of the earth, God's Spirit. And then the third, the third person in the Trinity, Jesus, the Son, is the one that we find it difficult to understand in Genesis 1. Because Jesus is the actual words that God speaks. Jesus is the actual words that God speaks. Jesus is the creative force that God uses to bring the universe into being. When God says, let there be light, that's Jesus going forth, creating light. It's a hard concept. Jesus is the word of God. That God's speech, Jesus, is independent of God, 
but somehow originates with God. So this word, when God speaks these words, that is in fact Jesus. So that's an interesting idea, isn't it? That when Jesus spoke, for example, to Abraham, to Moses, that was Jesus. If Jesus is God's word, that was Jesus as well. Jesus was present in many, many places and at many times in Scripture. And actually, um, <clears throat> so Jesus is the words that God speaks. And John, writing much later in John's Gospel, in the um, poetic and dramatic introduction to his Gospel, makes this abundantly clear, doesn't he? Let's just look at that. John then says, same three words as at the start of Genesis, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word, Jesus, was with God. And the word was God. Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was the life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness could not understand it. And a couple of verses later, the five most astonishing words in the whole Bible, John comes up with this phrase that just hits us like, like a truck. The five most amazing words in the Bible, John says, this word who was with God in the beginning, who called order out of chaos, who called light out of darkness, who flung galaxies into the space. He then says, and the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. That this dynamic force that God uses to drive back the darkness will become a gurgling baby, born into filth, born into squalor. This was a shocking idea to people at the time. It was shocking. And it is still, to people today, in some religions, a blasphemous idea. God wouldn't do that. He's splendid and majestic and above all things. He wouldn't do that. That's just not possible. But it is true. God, John tells us in his gospel, this word, this dynamic force, this life-giving power, and the word became flesh. We should still be shocked by this today, as they were when it was written. So, meanwhile... What about the Holy Spirit? So God the Father and God the Son, we see them working together in partnership to bring creation out of nothing. Meanwhile, what is God's Holy Spirit doing? Well, the Holy Spirit tells us of God's own heart. Think of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 as the very breath of God, or some people say the very breathing of God. So God's words... That's Jesus. God's very breath is his Holy Spirit. The word and the breath are parallel ideas, but with the same origin. And there, there's, just, uh, there's some interesting words in this very, these very first words of Genesis. So for a start, when it says, in the beginning, God, that God is a plural word, Elohim. It's a plural word. Although created is a singular verb, so a plural noun, Singular verb. Yeah. So we've already got this multiplicity and yet unity in the first line. And then the word used for spirit, the Hebrew word for spirit, is this word, ruach, R-U-A-C-H. I only mention it because it's interesting. It's a feminine noun. Right? Now, God is not male or female. God is above both male and female. God has the best attributes of male and female. And um, Jesus told us to call God Father, so that's what we do. We call him Father. 
This noun is a feminine noun. And I think it's interesting because a better translation of hovering is brooding, as Eugene Peterson in his message translation says, the Spirit of God brooded like a bird. So you get this idea, at the beginning of time, father and son in creation, and God's own heart, God's spirit brooding over the, over the darkness, brooding over the face of the earth like a mother hen. What a, what a picture. I think that's amazing, that God's heart was brooding over the face of the earth, brooding, thinking, as, as we can brood over children, brooding over the face of the earth, what will become of them? How will they manage? Will they manage? It's going to be so difficult. And knowing all the things that are to come, they will fall away from us. They will be disobedient. And the word will have to become flesh. It will be difficult for them, but so difficult for us. God's heart moving over the face of the earth. Just think about that idea. It's a powerful, evocative idea. Just in those first few words of the Bible, a very moving idea. And we start to hear something of God's own heart. An almighty God, knowing what is to come, with a, but with a heart that broods, that grieves, that longs. And we see this in Scripture. It is possible to grieve the heart of God. And th- this idea of the Spirit of God, God's own heart, is consistent with Jesus' uh, description of the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. He says in John 14... Uh, the Comforter will come to you. So we see, in summary, that God is community from the very beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just in the first couple of verses of Genesis. Let's talk about Holy Spirit just for a minute. We've talked a little bit in the last couple of weeks, but we don't often talk about God's Holy Spirit. This is the person of God we know least about. In fact, James Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God which is about 30, 40 years old now. If you haven't read it, it's a very, very interesting and very illuminating read and an easy read. He says uh, about the Holy Spirit, Christians are in no doubt as to what Christ did, but the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the Holy Spirit does. So just uh, briefly, uh, this was also a problem, not just in modern times, that we sometimes are not clear about the Holy Spirit, even in biblical times. Right um, at the beginning of Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus, which is in what we now call Turkey. And he's going there to spread the gospel. And guess what? There's already a church in Ephesus. It's great. There are already followers of the way. That's what they were called. They weren't called Christians. There are already followers of the way in Ephesus. And Paul says, this is great. You guys are here. The church is here. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they go, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. It's wonderful. It's it's, it's a moment of hilarity. He walks into the church and he says, this is great. I've come to spread the gospel, but the gospel is already here. There's a church. Barnabas, Timothy, look, there's a church. Guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And he goes, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. I think the exact words are, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just, uh, it's not just today perhaps that we're sometimes in a fog even in the New Testament, we find churches that were really, uh, didn't, didn't, in this case, didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And even today, the Holy Spirit is kind of often ignored, the Cinderella doctrine, as it says there. But what if there was no Holy Spirit? Maybe that's a question of, 
uh, a better question or a different question, what does the Holy Spirit do? What if there was no Holy Spirit? What, what, what would the difference be in the church today if there was just no Holy Spirit? Well, I mean, obviously there would be no gifts of the Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians about the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, about, um, about healing, about tongues, about teaching. Uh, there are creative gifts of the Spirit, being creative, administrative gifts, those gifts would not be available to the church. But not just that. If there was no Holy Spirit, there are some major impacts on us today. First of all, there would be no Bible. Again, back in the 4th century, roughly the time that that creed was written, the Bible was coming together, the books, the 66 books. There were many books floating around. And it was these men and women, but mainly men at that time, who brought together the books, what we call the canon of Scripture, the 66 books. They agreed it. And pretty much, there are some extra books that some people that we disagree on, but pretty much those 66 books are agreed across the Christian church today. Eastern Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church, Protestant Church. We wouldn't have that agreement were it not for the Holy Spirit. If it was not for the Holy Spirit there would be no agreement as to what Christians believe. That creed, written, the uh, Apostles' Creed, was the, the defining statement of our beliefs. Sometimes it sounds obvious to us, but it wasn't obvious when they wrote it. There were so many heresies, so many arguments. These were the early days. It was confusing. Like, things like Trinity, the divinity of Christ, there were a lot of arguments so a guy called Arius said Jesus wasn't really God. He couldn't have been. It doesn't make sense. How could he be God and a man at the same time? That was declared to be a heresy by these men who put the creed together. Another guy said, well, like we were saying before, God can't be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at the same time. He, sh- he shifts. It's like a shapeshifter from one to the next. They called it modalism. That was declared to be a heresy and thrown out of the church. Other people said, well, God wasn't uh, really a man and they had this idea that when, he walked, that when Jesus walked on the sand, he didn't leave footprints because he wasn't a man. And they became the Gnostics. And that was declared to be a heresy and thrown out of the church. There were so many arguments to us today. We look at the statements of the creed and we say, well, that's obvious. But it was not obvious. There were so many theologies, so many doctrines, so many teachings that had to be untangled and agreed on by the whole church at what we call the church councils. And that was the job of the Holy Spirit. Men and filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, if there was no Holy Spirit, there would be, actually, no Christians. It's great that um, we have, for example, the Alpha Course at this church, and we need to be talking to people about Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's only the Holy Spirit who will convict somebody in their heart, who will convince them of the truth of the Gospel. That's only the work of the Holy Spirit. So there wouldn't be, any, wouldn't be anything if there was no Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate or helper or comforter to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So Jesus starts to talk to his disciples about this Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. Okay, so that's a little bit of a discussion around the topic of God and who is this God, but... For the last minutes today, I want to change tack from uh, knowing about God to knowing God because it's, I hope, all very interesting.
But knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. It's never the same. If you think about it, for example, I know about the Queen. She's 92, 93 years old, and she's been on the throne for 60-odd years, and she has all these children. But I don't know her. I don't know her. I don't know her. I can know about her. So in the same way, we can know lots of things about God without really deepening our knowledge of God as a person. So let's just talk about that for this last, uh, these last minutes. In, in many ways, God is unfathomable. We can't really define this trinity in words that we have. It's outside of our conceptual framework. But God is not unknowable. God is very knowable. And uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only those who do the will of my Father. And on that day, I will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. You didn't know me. You knew about me, but you didn't know me. And this is an astonishing, another astonishing fact, that this God who creates order from chaos, who drives back the darkness, the triune God at the start of time, wants you to know him. He wants us to know him. He actually desires that we know him. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He's already community. He's not lonely. But he desires that we know him. This is wonderful. This is, in fact, the meaning of life. Have you ever wondered about that? I don't know. Apparently it's the most common question on Google. It's not 42. Actually, the meaning of life, is it not to know God, to know him more and more, as preparation for our our eternal life? Um, It's a wonderful, a compelling and exciting goal to know God in this life, to know him more and more, to know his heart, to know his ways, to know his ways of thinking, is the meaning of our lives. Okay, that's good. But then how do we do that? How do we uh, differentiate knowing about God from knowing God himself? What do we have to do? Well, two things. I think knowing God means being with God, but it also means going with God. Being with God, I think we're quite good at. You're all here today. I'm here today. Because we want to be in God's presence, don't we? God has a personality, a heart and a spirit. And this can be experienced in worship, in prayer, in reading of scripture. And God invites us to commit time, to dedicate time to spend in his company. The basic rules of a relationship are, if you want to know someone, you have to spend time with them, right? Otherwise, it doesn't really make sense. So God invites us to do that. That's one thing. Many of us are already doing that. Being with God. The hard thing that we're often not so good at. Knowing God also means going with God. Going with God. What does that mean? Well, that's back to Matthew 7. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. Going with God means getting to know what is it that God cares about. I want to know about that. What are his concerns in this world? I want to know about those. What's his mission in Lynn? I want to know about that. How can I be a part of that? Lining up our ways with his ways, lining up our interests with his interests. And for some of us, that might mean 
packing up and going somewhere completely different and dedicating our lives to a new thing. For all of us, it will mean doing something. All disciples are called to something. All disciples are called to something. It's not possible to be a disciple and just uh, listen but never do. Jesus says that in Matthew 7 and Matthew 14, which we'll look at in the small groups. You might be thinking, well, what can I do? There are loads of things to do in this church, in your place of work. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, I've been a Christian for whatever it is, 40, 50, 60 years. I've got very little energy. I find it difficult. Well, there are still things you can do. You can be an avid encourager of other people who are going. You can be an avid prayer of people who are going. We are all called as disciples. Every disciple is called to something. We need to work out what that is. But knowing God means going with God. Being with God is important, but going with God is where we often hesitate. So lastly, this series is about following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And there's a picture there of an empty boat. Because the disciples could have said, this is great, we like sitting in a boat, we like fishing, and this guy is is quite good to listen to on the shore, Jesus. Let's do this every Sunday. Tell you what, let's do it on Wednesday, we'll have coffee as well in the evening. They could have said something like that, but but the boat is empty, because they didn't. They got out, and they followed. They actually got out, it meant doing something. God knows you already, okay? God knows you and loves you just as you are this minute with all your random thoughts and whatever you did this morning and last week and all our ways and all our things that that irritate other people. God knows that and he loves you completely just as you are right now. God is never disillusioned with you Because God never had any illusions about you. He's known you completely since before you knew yourself. But he invites you to know him. He says, come and know me. I know you. I know you completely. I knew you in your mother's womb. But come and know me. Stop knowing about me and come know me. Stop knowing just about me and come and know me. That means following, means a specific calling. All disciples are called to something. It means sharing the journey with others along the way, in church, in small groups, in fellowship groups, in prayer triplets, sharing the journey along the way. That is part of what, is, of what it means to be a disciple. So the last question then, <clears throat> which was the same question we asked, Jonathan asked two weeks ago, do you want to follow? Do you really want to follow? I'm going to end by praying two prayers. Um, The first prayer I'm going to read out is a prayer for people perhaps for whom this is new. Perhaps you've heard about Christianity, perhaps you've been in church a long time, but you've never made a decision to actually follow Jesus. And this is a prayer for you if you feel, if you're thinking, God, if you're real, I want to know you. God, if you're real, I want to know you. And this first prayer is for you. And the second prayer will be for all of us. So in this first prayer, if that's you, you repeat these lines quietly in your own heart. won't ask you to stand up or anything like that. Just say the words quietly in your own heart. 
Let's all pray. <clears throat> so for those who would like to say, God, if you're real, I want to know you, please say after me in your own heart. Lord, thank you that you know me and you love me. I know I have taken a different path that has led away from you. I have grown distant from you. I have not followed you. But today, I want to come back. I want to know what it means to be forgiven. I want to know what it means to be a follower of the one true God. I want to know God. Come into my life today and help me to be a follower. Amen. And then for all of us, Lord, we don't want to settle for second best. We don't want to settle for just knowing about you and learning about you without knowing you. So Lord, show us what it is that we need to be doing to be doing the will of the Father in our workplaces, in our church, in our street, maybe in our families. What is it, Lord, that we need to be doing and not just saying or listening? Help us not to leave this place, Lord, and just forget about these things. Lord, help us to know you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.